the Fertility Podcast is here to help you understand more about your fertility and for the last eight years has published a lot of conversations with experts and people sharing their stories. It's now going back to its roots, giving you people's lived experiences once again to give you comfort in knowing there's a community of people who get it so you find commonality, be inspired and know you're not alone. Started by me, Natalie Silverman, a former patient, once I was pregnant after fertility treatment, I later joined forces with Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant, who is now your host. And here she is. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the Fertility Podcast and this episode, this first episode of the new series and also the first episode of 2024. So happy new year to you. I hope that you managed to have a restful break and yeah, we're just able to kick back a little bit and maybe enjoy a little bit of the of the festive season. I really do hope that for you. So I'm really excited about this new season of the Fertility Podcast. We've got some excellent episodes um, that I've been recording prior to the break over Christmas. We, we enjoyed a lovely break and we've uh, come back kind of all guns firing with some super, super episodes. And I'm really excited about this first one, which I'm going to tell you about in a moment. But before we talk about that, let's talk about the new year and what that might mean for you. So this time of year, you won't find me setting a New Year's resolution. I find that they, you don't really stick to them, do you? You maybe try for a couple of weeks and it doesn't really happen. But what I always do is I decide on my word for the year. And that word is a word that I generally kind of like to live my life by. So in the past, I might have had growth. I might have had peacefulness, whatever it might be. And I just think it's a really good thing for you as you're navigating a fertility journey to kind of make help you feel grounded, perhaps be reminded of this word, particularly in times when you might feel overwhelmed or particularly stressed. So it might be something you want to do. However, typically for me, this year I couldn't just settle on one word. So I've actually got a sentence <laughs> that I'm going to live 2024 by. So if you want to go and have a look at what my sentence is, maybe to give you a bit of inspiration, then check out my post on Instagram on Your Fertility Nurse. You'll see I've posted some lovely pictures of kind of our family time over the festive season and I've included my sentence for 2024 in that. But anyway, let's start talking about what we're here for. And this is the new episode. So this episode is all about PCOS. And I I can't, well, first of all, I can't tell you how excited I was to be recording this episode. A, I love talking about PCOS. I could talk about PCOS till the cows come home. But particularly because I was joined by an incredible guest. So I was delighted to be joined by Professor Helena Teed and Helena is an endocrinologist and um, she works at Monash University in Australia. So it was an early morning recording for me as you'll hear and a late one for her because she stayed on at work extra late to join me. So thank you so much Helena for doing that. 
But importantly, Helena is also one of the lead authors for the International PCOS Guidelines. And that's what we're going to be talking about, along with the new guidelines that have just been released, which are really important for you to understand because there's some significant changes. And also we're talking about the proposed PCOS name change, and you can have your say on this. So make sure you do, and you'll be hearing more about that. And also about a fantastic new resource for you if you are struggling with PCOS and you want to understand how to optimize your condition and also your fertility, then this is for you. So stay tuned. Without further ado, let's bring Helena in. Welcome, Helena, to the Fertility Podcast. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you. And you're here today to talk with me about the updated PCOS guidelines, which I think were updated in February. Was that right? Uh, yes. So the final version came out in August, actually, in 2023. In so very current. Okay. Yeah, very current. And I've been, I have to say, I've been pouring over them. So there's been quite a few changes, which is great to see. And let's start with diagnosis, because I understand that we can now use AMH or anti-malarian hormone as a way of diagnosing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So diagnosis um, was quite complex, and we know that many women were not diagnosed or took several visits to the doctors to get diagnosed. And, and one of the reasons is that the complexity of the criteria. So there is now just one criteria, which is the international guideline criteria that's been endorsed by 39 societies, including British societies and uh, around the world. And essentially for the vast majority of women, if they have irregular periods, when they're not in any form of contraception, and they have what we call hyperandrogenism or signs of high circulating hormones in the androgen group, and they can be excess body or facial hair, um, more severe acne, sometimes a bit of scalp hair loss, but those are all features of higher androgen levels or higher androgen levels in the blood. For the vast majority of women with this condition, it's the irregular cycles and either those clinical or blood test results that give them the diagnosis. For the relatively small number of women who have one, such as irregular cycles or hyperandrogenism and not the other, they can go on to have either an ultrasound of the ovaries or a blood test for AMH. So it's definitely not required for everyone, um, but for the women, the 30% of women who might have needed an ultrasound, which can be expensive, is not particularly convenient or an exceptionally mm. pleasant experience that mm. can now be replaced by a blood test that's done when you're having your, your um, androgen type hormone levels done. So it's now much simpler and much more streamlined. And that, that's fantastic. And I just think that's going to really, well, I hope that helps in, in improving um, timed diagnosis, which we know can be incredibly long and so I really do hope that makes a difference. The other thing that I thought was really interesting and, and something that I see an awful lot in my patients with PCOS is depression and anxiety and I now see that that's recognized as a component of PCOS. Yeah it's actually so I think really important to think about the fact that this is there are no cysts on these ovaries they're mm. half-developed follicles or eggs and this is not an ovarian disease. So we have a really big problem to move away from the concept of that. Also, you know, ovary diseases are seen as diseases of women and just about reproduction. 
And this is actually a condition that can affect people from even childhood, but definitely puberty, and right through their lifespan. It has features that are related to reproduction, irregular cycles, infertility, and, and quite high pregnancy risks that can be mitigated, but we need to make sure we, we work on that. Uh, to um, metabolic features such as diabetes, um, increased risk of weight gain, uh, high blood pressure, etc., and more heart disease but then through to the psychological features. And they are probably the most dismissed mm -hmm. uh, component. And yet for women with a the condition, they're really real. So up to 80% of women with this condition will suffer depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms. So pretty much all people with the condition. And a lot of that um, depression and anxiety symptoms are related to the features. So if you've got an adolescent and she, she's someone who's looking at a body shape that's changing in a way she's not really happy with, She's putting on weight around her tummy. She's got perhaps a, a receding hairline. She has acne. She has body and facial hair. She doesn't get periods like her, her friends and colleagues. Um, you know, and, and her self-esteem, body image, high risk of eating disorders. There's a lot of things going on there. And, and the depression and anxiety um, is superimposed on that. If you then think of women coming into their reproductive age, as well as battling that ongoing hirsutism and ongoing weight gain, um, they're then looking at infertility, and we know that the rough, um, the rough road that people have along that journey, and and how many challenges that brings, and that's superimposed. Um, and then there are often often women have challenges in pregnancy, which again can be mitigated if they're known about. And then there's the, the longer term health risks. So I think uh, as much as anything for women with this condition, diagnosis is therapy. Mm. If they if they know when they feel different at the age of 15, 16, 17, they know what they've got. Then these young women need a, a diagnosis, they need information, and they need a reproductive life plan. That starts when they're 18 and doesn't put them on the pill for a symptom, give them no diagnosis, leave them at their, you know, at their own will to sort of navigate things, which is often compounded by more, more severe weight gain. And then all of a sudden to decide in their early 30s they want to have a family. And they may come out with much higher weight than they wanted. They quite often have diabetes by that stage and they've had no chance for prevention um, or optimization or even early flat family planning and initiation. Because we do know now that um, the evidence shows that if you have an early diagnosis in adolescence, you're more likely to reach your family aspiration size. You're more likely to, to try to conceive at an earlier age and you're more likely to have a successful pregnancy um, and indeed more than one pregnancy. One of the challenges we see at the moment is if you diagnose later, you're often coming off the contraceptive, you know, well into your 30s, then you're seeking fertility and you know, often then you find time, it takes time to be diagnosed, it then takes time to get treatment. And then once you've had the pregnancy, it's often a longer interconception time. So women are getting older and older to get the, the family sizes they want. And they therefore do not have the same family size. But it's not related to lack of treatment. It's the fact that they're not starting early enough because they've not been diagnosed early enough. They haven't had a reproductive life plan that says stay as healthy as you possibly can mm. and, you know, plan for these things and be aware of them and, and we'll help you be as healthy as you can on that journey. Yeah, and it, you mentioned there about mitigating against um, risks during pregnancy um, and we also know that obviously the long-term risks of PCOS are diabetes and heart disease. Can you explain a little bit more about the long-term risks or the, sorry, the, the, can you explain a little bit more about the risks in pregnancy? Yeah. 
So they're actually quite substantial. This is something that was really quite new in the guideline um, and often poorly appreciated. And the reason they're not appreciated is that people don't identify their PCOS status in pregnancy. So if a woman has, has had PCOS and, and had infertility treatment and is pregnant and ecstatic about that, often comes into pregnancy and doesn't mention they have PCOS and rarely do health professionals identify it, including midwives and obstetricians. And so they're not um, flagged. And so even when you look at routine pregnancy data, and the UK has a you know, wealth of data to look at um, trends in pregnancy and look at safety and improving outcomes. But if PCOS is not in there, it doesn't get identified. So what we've now found is as more PCOS is identified in pregnancy, so there's um, a much higher risk of, of higher BMI going into pregnancy, which is a feature of the condition, much higher risk of excess gestational weight gain during the pregnancy, um, much, much higher risk of gestational diabetes, which in the UK is already astronomical um, as it is in Australia, and, and rise, rising, much higher risk of hypertension, preeclampsia, um, of having a small baby. These, these women, despite are often having risks for having a bigger baby, like gestational diabetes and, and struggling um, with some of the challenges around their weight, um, their babies are not big, they're small, because the blood supply from the placenta is affected by the PCOS. So they can have a smaller baby, they can have a higher risk of cesarean section. So all of these things, and, and indeed miscarriage, all of these things happen in the pregnancy, but most of them are preventable or definitely improvable. And yet if we don't identify women as having uh, PCOS at the start of the pregnancy, that can't happen. Yeah. So we know, for example, that really simple, supportive lifestyle, healthy lifestyle um, in pregnancy can reduce gestational diabetes by 40%, can dramatically reduce hypertension. That's not just telling women go and be healthy. That's actually supporting them to be healthy. Um, and that's really the difference. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things in the new guidelines that I've been really interested to read is that we need to get away from this weight-centric approach and have a more of a supportive lifestyle. And, and I see with my patients a lot that they, especially if they're they're wanting to access fertility treatment, sadly have a BMI with regards to the UK with a, over 30 and they're refused fertility treatment, they're told just go away and lose weight. Well, we know that that's not easy for women with PCOS. Um, and there's the whole weight stigma, which I know a lot of women, want, when they hear about the new guidelines and hear that actually we need to get away from that weight-centric approach and to try and reduce weight stigma, they're going to feel really relieved. My only concern with that is, absolutely, that's all well and good, but until we can get away from BMI being the way that we allow or di or disallow women to access fertility treatment I don't know how we're ever going to completely get rid of that stigma what do you think about that yeah so so I just I think we need to be really fair to women mm. here the reality is that women don't choose to have a higher weight they mm. don't it's not a personal failure it's not a disastrous it's not behavioral choices that are all up to them the reality is that a couple of decades ago, it was very unusual for people to be overweight. Now, for example, in Australia, it's 70% of the population. I think it's even higher in the UK. 70% mm. of people do not choose, um, are not failing in their behaviours and choosing to be that way. And what we know is it's our women with the highest, uh, sorry, with the lowest socioeconomic status. It's women often of, of um, different cultural backgrounds. It's often women in rural areas and towns. So we, by, di by discriminating, which is what we're doing, 
against yeah. uh, women accessing infertility care, which is their gateway to having a child. And let's be, you know, the right to reproduce is a pretty basic right. So by discriminating against women on the basis of BMI and then not offering them access to bariatric surgery or to anti-obesity medication, for example, we are basically saying you are living in a, a dreadfully, I'm going to use the word obesogenic environment, but basically an environment that fails you in terms of food policy and access to a healthy environment. Assumes it's your fault. And we know it's not the fault of the general population. It's sure not the fault of the individual with PCOS. But we judge you and say, no, you can't have this treatment um, because you've got a higher BMI. And that's actually very inequitable and probably ethically unreasonable. And we didn't go that far in the guideline, but we have a, a challenging piece about to come out about this. And, and one of the things about this is if, if a woman has epilepsy, if a woman has diabetes, if a woman has heart disease, she's not precluded from those treatments. And Absolutely. yet the argument here is, well, if she's at higher weight, then then it is true, it impacts fertility, and, it, and we showed that in the guideline, and it also increases pregnancy risk. Mm. But, but it's not necessarily under the control of the individual, and it's not something you can just fix, and, and it is hard to do. So lifestyle alone um, is, is quite unlikely to just resolve infertility. And one of the reasons for that is that we know that even when women lose weight, our bodies are beautifully designed to prevent starvation. They have absolutely no protection against weight gain. So what that means is if I have a really high BMI and a higher weight, from, you know, because of my condition and also because of the environment, more so the environment than anything, and I decide to lose weight, if I lose 5 kilos, 10 kilos, great, but my body perceives that I'm starving. Even though my weight is high, I've lost weight. And sometimes that can make uh, our body even shut down our reproductive system because it's a time of lean pickings, you know, potentially going into a famine or, you know, disease or it's been a natural disaster and it's not a good time to have a child. So we have this sort of real compromise between higher weight impacting on our fertility in response to treatment and then any weight loss potentially, you know, confusing our reproductive system. And we haven't really got answers for women yet about, you know, for example, do we try and get women to lose weight and then stabilise for a while? And if they stabilise, how long do they stabilise for? What we do know is the most important thing we should be doing right from the outset is helping everyone at a population level to prevent that weight gain through things like yeah. sugar tax, through preventative strategies that work, through being able to make healthy food cheaper and, you know, poor quality food more relatively more expensive. There's lots of ways to do it, but just simple education is not enough. Um, yeah. And really we're leaving our population floundering and then giving them a, a probably morally, ethically and definitely inequitable um, boundary to overcome without any support to do that uh, mm -hmm. and then judging them and saying you know no you can't have infertility treatment which when you really think about it you know we don't tell people they can't have their heart operation we don't tell them they can't have so many things and, and it is it's stuck in the paradigm of this is your fault and if you can't fix it we won't treat you yeah I mean, we don't tell women that are able to conceive naturally that you can't conceive naturally because you might be a little bit overweight. We don't say that either, do we? So incredibly unfair. Now, one one thing kind of talking about lifestyle, I'm interesting, interested to hear what you advise, is we know that there's not one 
diet out there that is best for PCOS. Although for women, it's such a battle because they will Google that and they will find examples of diets that are are supposed to help their PCOS. And some of these can be really restrictive. How do you advise women on eating right for PCOS? Great question. Um, (laughs) The really important thing you've got to do is avoid misinformation. Most people who are peddling a hormone, there is no such thing as a hormone diet, and I'm a hormone specialist. There is, you know, the lemon diet, the, you know, no um, dairy diet, the every diet that's out there, none of them have been proven to be better than others. Mm -hmm. I fully appreciate it's incredibly frustrating when people are repeatedly feeling like they're hitting themselves against a brick wall and sliding down and trying to get back up again. And and it's true, our hormones and our physiology are very much against us, especially in PCOS. So my advice is around, I don't I don't care, or I, I care, but I don't, there is no judgment around where you are now. Where you are now is where you are now. How do we get you to be the healthiest you can be moving forward? And And for me, often the aim is just literally healthy as you can be. And if that happens to be a weight maintenance and a healthy lifestyle, fantastic. If we can get you a little bit fitter where you are now, fantastic. And that doesn't matter where you start because we can always improve things. Um, what I don't do is set unrealistic goals and mm. set people up to fail and set people up to blame themselves for what is, you know, what's affecting everyone in our environment. I mean, in the US now, 50% of women who go into pregnancy are above a BMI of 30. You know, that's 50% of mothers. So we find in in the UK and in Australia, um, mothers are, uh, women are putting on significant amounts of weight before pregnancy and they're waiting longer. So we're going into pregnancy less healthy than we used to be. Now that again is not an individual's fault, but what we can do is support people to be as healthy, the healthiest version of, of themselves. Now, if they have, um, you know, if they have tried repeatedly to lose weight, if there's any inclination or indication of eating disorders, um, we need to be sensitive about all of that. And so this conversation needs to start with where is that woman at this time? Um, a respectful conversation around, you know, we're going to focus on you being healthy here. You know, one of the options is potentially to look at weight. Do you want to look at that or not? Because there are many people who don't want a weight-centric approach. Or do you want to focus primarily on being healthy, as healthy as we can get you, and get your feel for where that goes? It's not a long conversation, um, but it can frame a conversation where you may be dealing with someone who's had, you know, really long-standing eating disorders, body image, self-esteem issues, psychological challenges, especially if they're now in, the, you know, in the infertility treatment treadmill. Um, so those sorts of conversations just position things a bit more reasonably. And the other yeah. thing I do too is I also emphasise that for most of us, where we actually put on on weight, all of us, is around those times where we often don't, where we just let ourselves go. So Easter, birthdays, mm-hmm. Christmas, especially in the middle of the cold. So often mm-hmm. we think it's okay for a week, you know, it's just Christmas. And yet we put on half kilo or a kilo because we just eat a whole lot more over that period. Same when we go out and splurge at, at you know, birthdays or, or Easter. So one of the things I talk to people about is trying to avoid just completely lashing out at those times. So have your treats, make sure you enjoy what you're eating, but just always make sure that you're just watching that portion size. No matter when yeah. it is, you can't, you, you can't necessarily um, even have those little moments of higher intake, not quality intake, have your pump pudding, have a little piece. Have, you know, so just making sure people are aware that it's not a constant gain necessarily, but it's often those increments. 
And if you're a bit more cognizant about it, people, you know, just reminding people before those sorts of events. So we talk about just control your portions, try and be as healthy as you can. Um, we're going to focus on making you healthy. And then we work together around what their goals are. And I'm not talking about Mount Everest 20 kilos. I'm talking about what do you think you could achieve? 10 minutes walking a day, you know, what, um, uh, changing to a low-fat milk. It might be really simple things. So we do the steps on the way to Mount Everest and then what gets in their way of achieving each step and how we help them. And so we actually set them, help them to set goals and then achieve those goals. And those goals are small, but they're all on the way to a healthier lifestyle and a healthier them. And I think that sort of approach to a supportive, empathetic, non-judgmental approach, uh, you know, and they may not lose 10 or 20 kilos, but losing 10 or 20 kilos may not necessarily improve their fertility. Mm. Um, and whereas preventing the gain is always going to, going to improve the fertility and, and their health generally. So I think we should just be helpful, supportive, non-judgmental and, uh, and really empathetic as much as anything else. Absolutely. Music to my ears. Quick fire question. Inositol, yes, no, or maybe? Ah, yes, no, and maybe. <laughs> no, it does not live up to the hype. And because it is not a regulated medicine, the compounds that you get are not necessarily well quality controlled. They can contain mm. any sort of dose. or So so the okay. hype that's out there, the claims are often um, way above what it achieves. So the thing about inositol, and we did a really, really detailed review of the inositol studies, many of them are poor quality. Many of them that, that lead to the claims actually were not included in the guideline because they just did not meet basic quality uh, you know, uh, threshold. Many of them are funded by people who have vested interests, you know, from the, the industry, et cetera, or want to mm -hmm. promote a particular product. So there are some challenges with the nature of the evidence. Um, they, they do have a mechanism that we would like, you know, that, that they could work, they make sense. Um, they do also have some biochemical or hormonal changes that they can induce, but we fail to find any evidence of clinical improvement. They don't make your cycles regular. There's not evidence of true consistent improvement in ovulation. There's no evidence of improved fertility. And, and so it's really important that women who, uh, consider taking them recognize they're probably not going to do any harm. Yeah. They, they may help a little with the hormones. Um, but they're expensive mm. and we need to make sure that people are, are not not you know cost is an is a side effect so if they're taking mm. the right thing that's fine the other thing is metformin is more effective than inositol mm. so if you go and take something and you can tolerate something metformin is more effective um yeah. but having said that at the moment we're treating everyone with pcos in a blanket way as if it's a single condition and what's really exciting for me and, and i think women with the condition is very soon, probably in the next 12 months, we'll see a completely transformative approach to the way we think of PCOS and the subtypes. They're, they're, I've seen the, the data, it's coming out. So we're going Great. to see subgroups of women that are, that are different. And it's quite likely that those subgroups will respond differently to different treatments. And it might be that inositol works in some of those women, which are mainly insulin resistance based. And, and other treatments might work in other groups. So that's the really exciting thing we're going to see from now. So watch this space. Um, well, but at we'll the moment, do. yeah, at the moment, it, it's unlikely to harm you, but it's also not likely to, to make a big difference. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's good advice. Thank you. And I look forward to, to seeing that and to seeing, you know, the subgroups will be really interesting and whether there are 
our different ways in which we treat. You mentioned at the very beginning that PCOS isn't cysts on the ovaries. That's not what we're looking at. And as a result, I know that you're leading a campaign, is that the right word, to change the name of PCOS. So interestingly, I, I, yes, that's true. So it's not just that they're not cysts. They they can be called functional cysts, but they're basically eggs that are half developed and don't like the hormonal environment they're floating around in. Um, But the problem with the name is it, it, it reduces the condition to just an ovary disease with all the taboo and stigma and things that go around that. Plus, we've got increasing evidence this affects men as well. So that the gene risks, um, the gene score, if you apply it to men, actually pick a group of men who are much higher cardiovascular risk, for example, much higher heart disease and stroke risk. So it's probably not just uniquely a a wounds condition. It also affects women after menopause when their ovaries have minimal function. It affects women after they've had a hysterectomy and then their ovaries removed. So it's not an ovary disease. And the ovaries involved in the condition, but it's not primarily an ovarian disease, or at least not the, the broader groups. So uh, knowing that the name is inaccurate uh, creates a misperception that it's all just a gynecological disease. For example, in medical education, it takes up one hour out of five years under the infertility ovary section. Um, so all of these psychological, um, you know, weight, BMI, diabetes, cardiovascular risk, dermatological features, which are quite, have quite a profound effect on women, they're, they're all supposed to somehow be irrelevant. And so the, it's an education barrier. It's an awareness barrier. It prevents good care. It prevents research. Um, it stigmatises the condition and it doesn't win any favours. So I started an initiative around this probably around 2009, 2010, in response to consumer calls to look at the name. We did a lot of work. We did surveys of thousands of people around the world, health professionals and women. And in 2015, we held an international summit where we looked at those thousands of responses and explored a name change. And universally, people agreed as representatives of peak bodies and consumer groups, including from the UK, that we needed to change the name. But no one could come up with what it should be. Mm. And so at that stage, we put it on hold. Now, recently, the consumer group, actually Verity in the UK, came back to me and said, we really want to have another go at this. We think this is the biggest impediment to progress in this condition. Will you lead it with us? So it's not me leading the crusade, but rather me supporting and leading the consumer groups. So knowing this is highly political, and it is political, shouldn't be, but it is, um, I, I decided to, you know, I would undertake this and we, um, I really want to commend the UK consumer group. They have been incredibly courageous and really bringing people together around the Very world. Very brilliant. Mm. Yes, they are really brilliant. And, and really they're four women in leadership roles who, who just commit their lives to this, um, plus mm. all their members. But what we have done this time is gone out much more broadly with our surveys. And in fact, what we found is 91% of women with PCOS want to change the name. Now, uh, to me, there is no more compelling argument than that. And indeed, health providers don't, are very similar. But the most compelling thing is that women want to change the name. And it's interesting that some of our biggest barriers to changing the name are the almost professional consumer groups that are now forming around the world, and, and there are a number of countries, who have sort of you know, worked very hard in advocating for awareness around PCOS, and they've really invested in PCOS and the name, and they feel they're finally, you know, cracking through and don't want to have a change in the name. But what 
perhaps has been failed to be realised is we will never improve medical education. <laughs> well, the name is what it is. It's just no. not going to happen. We will not, you know, break out the, the traditional very, very narrow, small funding pots for women's reproductive diseases. We will not end up with models of care that are looking at lifelong conditions and break out of the silos beyond the gynaecology um, unless we recognise that it is a broad condition. And the other thing we've learned is that you never start a debate about whether you should change the name by worrying what the name is going to be because no one will ever agree and you'll never progress. Mm -hmm. And so learning that from others, um, we started with the question, should we change the name and why? And we have managed to pretty much get nearly everybody on board with that. You know, the, I think we're up to eight and a half thousand responses now. Um, there's over me a included. I did it Good. too. Right. Yeah, including <laughs> about a thousand from the UK. And so we're going to change the name. It's been endorsed that we will go on a, on a journey to do that. Um, but there's more consultation needed about to what. What I will tell you though is that um, we know what women don't want. They don't want a hormonal condition. They don't want hormonal imbalance. They don't want androgens in the name. Um, and so there are lots of things that they don't want to be labelled as. But what we can come back down to now is genetically, this is a condition with reproduction, reproductive and metabolic features. That's what it is. And, and it's an endocrine or hormonal underpinning. So women are actually quite comfortable with reproductive, endocrine and metabolic. And it's a matter of how we combine those. And there's now been quite a, a reasonably strong push to keep PCOS, but change the PC and OS. For example, yes. um, prevalent cardiometabolic, um, you know, it may even be that it, it, it's actually prevalent cardiometabolic endocrine syndrome. Now, that sounds long, but everyone just calls it PCOS anyway. Yeah. And so it's not that much longer than what it is at the moment, but it takes away the cysts. It's not just about the ovaries. And but it doesn't remove PCOS as, as a, a label. Hello, I'm Ella, Kate Zinton. I do all the editing and scheduling for the Fertility Podcast. What you're about to hear is one of Kate's followers from Instagram sharing their story about PCOS and weight stigma. Hello. So I was diagnosed with PCOS in early 2019 after coming off the pill early right at the beginning of uh, January 2018 and I was passed around several doctors over the course of the year. This is 2019 after still not having a period for well over a year. I first had a male doctor who confirmed that I had PCOS but he actually got all the information from the NHS website, which I had done previously. So that filled me with a lot of confidence. Um, so he passed me on to the gynae doctor um, at my surgery. So I was passed on, I had a phone call from her and she referred me to someone else within the surgery. So I saw her and that was a face-to-face -face. and basically she looked at me and said that I was carrying too much fat around my ovaries and I needed to lose weight and if I lost the weight I would have absolutely no issue in my periods coming back or falling pregnant. As you can imagine this quite upset me at the time I was quite sort of like, you're going down the whole, I need to lose weight 
route then. She didn't have a clue about my background. She didn't really care, to be honest. She was just so focused on losing weight because it feels like, you know, if you've got PCOS, then you're automatically overweight. Now, bearing in mind that I am a UK size 12, always have been. I mean, I was probably a size 10 when I was like early 20s, but, you know, I'm not the biggest person, but I'm also not the smallest. I'd say I'm about average, but because my BMI was over what it should be for someone of my height and my weight, it automatically made me overweight. And at this time as well, I was actually training to do the London to Brighton bike ride. So I was pretty active and I worked with children as well. So I was on my feet all day. But anyway, she kept saying about losing weight and that I should also follow a more vegan plant-based diet and that will have many benefits. And yeah, basically sent me on my way. Although she did reluctantly refer me to the gynae at um, the hospital for further examinations, I guess. Well, anyway, that didn't happen for, oh my goodness, the best part of eight months. That was pretty, pretty awful. And when I turned up at gynae, they said, no, you need fertility. And again, even even though they said I need fertility, not gynae, they were focused on my weight, but only because my BMI. They said because my BMI was high, ideally it needed to be, you know, this this number, but I was that number. But in looking at what weight I should be for my height, I would have to have lost about three stone. And if I'd have done that, I would have looked ill and it just wasn't, it's just not realistic for me to be that weight for my frame because I am quite broad. Yeah, so it was pretty, pretty horrible because they kept focusing on my weight and I was told, you know, like I said, if, if I lost the weight, then I would have no issue with my periods and falling pregnant. Yeah, and that was far over five years ago. If there is anything that you would like to share on the Fertility Podcast, please do let us know either on Instagram at Your Fertility Nurse or email Kate at kate at yourfertilityjourney.com. And I'm used to still accepting responses. If so, I can put the link in the show notes for people to, to um, get involved and have their say. Yes, please. Um, we were, we're going to close it in January. We want to keep it um, open long. So we'll do another push in January. Um, and we've done a lot of work to engage people in, in other continents this time, so Asia, Africa, because there are cultural overlays to this as well. Um, and if we're changing the name internationally, we need international perspective. Absolutely. So, um, yes, I believe it'll be open until, I think, mid to late January. Great. Fantastic. And when I was um, looking at the name change, I then came across, which I hadn't come across before, and I'm, I'm a bit shocked and a bit disappointed that I hadn't come across it before, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, because I don't think many women in the UK have, was the Ask PCOS app. Yeah, that's, um, that's our baby. Um, so the Ask PCOS app is free. It has two um, resources in about up to 15 languages now. It was designed by women for women with a condition. 
And what we did was we did a, a big research program where we, we basically extracted the 95 top questions that women with this condition have. Now, 95 is a lot, but this condition's got so many complex features. And then we structured our information um, in a way that it is engaging, it uses um, you know, appropriate health literacy language um, to answer those 95 questions. But instead of just wading through layers and layers and layers of information on an app, it's got, um, it's got a, a system in the app that allows you, so for example, Katie, if it was you going into the app, it allows you to enter your name. Um, it allows you to, sorry, not your name, your concerns. So if you were to go in and say, my biggest concern is my depression, or my biggest concern is, am I going to get diabetes, or am I getting heart disease, or am I going to be able to have a child? You enter what you're most worried about, which changes in the one woman over the lifespan and changes, you know, um, uh, different life di between individuals and between their own life stage. You put your main concerns in, and the app will filter the most relevant information for you and answer those questions. And so, for example, you know, you said, what is PCOS? It will tell you that PCOS is caused by hormones or you know, chemicals. It tells you what they are, chemicals that float around in the bloodstream sending messages. It explains the different types of hormones. It explains how they work. And then it says it drops out questions for you to ask your doctor. And that goes into a little list on the app and you can then take it to your doctor at the next consultation. And it might be that your question might be, I now know what hormones are. I know that it's the androgens. I know how they work. What are my androgen levels and what does that mean for me is the question that drops out. And your GP does not have time to answer no. 95 questions and possibly no. may not know the answer to those 95 questions. Mm -hmm. The app does and will, but the individual part, you know, what are my results and what does this mean for me, drops out into your own checklist for your GP. There's goal setting. You can go in there and set goals. It'll help you to set goals. There's lots of lifestyle information and support. There's monitoring your periods. There's all sorts of things in there. And we've just got a very large grant now because it's used in 195 countries, which I have to say includes the Vatican. I haven't worked out who uses it in the Vatican yet. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. But, yes, no, but it's there. It's available. It's used widely. It's free. It's evidence-based. We don't sell you anything. There is nothing promoted on there that is not just about what you need to know. And then there's the tools you can use. And now we've got a very big grant to improve it so it can actually be used for shared decision-making. So when you're going to get infertility treatment, for example, it'll come up with questions to ask my doctor. You know, Amazing. why can't I have this treatment or could I think about having that treatment earlier? You know, so it makes it gives you informed questions so you can have a dialogue and an interaction with your health professional um, that, that allows you to participate in that shared decision-making in a more sophisticated way. Amazing. Well, I know it's I know it's fantastic because I've had a really good look at it, and like I said, I'm I'm making sure that I'm telling as many people as I possibly can because I don't think at the moment out in the UK there's the awareness that it's there. So I'm I'm going to do my job to hopefully promote it a little bit more for you. So right. fabulous, Helena. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've had a, a a really busy day, and it's the end of your day, and I really really appreciate you staying on just to talk to me about PCOS and to share your wisdom and I really 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 hope and wow we've got a lot to do if we're going to have to change obesity across the world but you know I really really do hope that these new guidelines and all the work that you're doing are going to make a difference I really I'm really positive that they are yeah thanks and and, and I must say that um, NOS in the UK have reached out and uh, which is that your guideline group 
and are looking at adapting and working with us to, to make sure this has its biggest impact in the UK. So should that come uh, to fruition, uh, that would be fantastic. Well, that's definitely going to help. So fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Wow, that was a huge amount of information that Helena has just shared there. Um, gosh, I think I'm going to have to have another re-listen to all of that. That was fantastic. So as I mentioned, I will make sure that the information about the PCOS name change is in the show notes for you, along with the information about the Ask PCOS app. So I hope you find both of those really useful. If you want to read the updated guidelines and warning, it's a long document, um, then I'll pop that in as well because it is useful. And as Helena mentioned, actually being able to have that information, especially on the app, and to help you with shared decision-making is really useful. Um, And I really do feel that getting the knowledge, reading the guidelines, understanding the guidelines and what they could mean for you can be beneficial in your ongoing care. So I will make sure that those are there for you. And then full disclosure, I'm sat here in a jumper, but underneath my jumper are my pyjamas because Helena and I spoke at what is, I think, 6 p.m. Australia time, 7 a.m. here. So my alarm went off. I jumped out of bed, brushed my hair, (laughs) put on a jumper over my pyjamas and came down here. But apologies, because during the recording, I think um, Helena might have got a couple of texts and maybe an email. So we heard a ping coming through. My husband got in the shower, so I could hear the shower going above me. Um, And my cat was playing around, so her cat bell was tingling away. So apologies for that. But at least the podcast is nothing but real. Anyway, we're back in another two weeks with another episode. So keep tuned and we'll be back very soon. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fertility Podcast, which is brought to you by NatChat Productions. The music is composed by Parler. It's hosted by Kate Davis and the episodes are put together by Ella Woodhouse and exec produced by me, Natalie Silverman. Before you click onto your next podcast, We'd love it if you could either click on the star ratings or write a quick review as it's a brilliant way for others to know what you think. And even just hitting follow or subscribe really helps other people know it's worth a listen. Finally, just to say, you can follow the podcast on Insta at Fertility Poddy. Kate is at your fertility nurse. And if you'd like to book in a consultation with Kate to understand more about your fertility and reproductive health, just visit yourfertilityjourney.com.